Hello and welcome back for 2017 to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute. It's great to be back for the new year and it's great to be joined by a familiar face today in Dr Gemma Purdy from Monash University who featured way back in episode 7 of the podcasting. Gemma, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me back, Dave. Now, I had two reasons to invite Gemma along today. The first is to announce that Gemma will be joining an expanded group of four co-hosts for the podcast this year, along with Charlotte Satyadi from ICES and Dirk Thompson from La Trobe. And you'll be hearing Gemma's first episode of Talking Indonesia in a fortnight's time. But more immediately, uh, I also want to discuss Gemma's research today on political dynasties in Indonesia, which has been very much at the forefront of attention of late with former President Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono's son, Agus Yudhoyono, running for Jakarta governor, against candidates backed by two of Indonesia's most prominent dynastic politicians, Improbowo Subianto and Megawati Sukarnoputri. Gemma has edited a special edition of the Southeast Asia Research Journal on political dynasties in Southeast Asia, in which her own research focuses on Prabowo's Joyo Hadikasumo family. But Gemma, could I start by asking you, what motivated you to bring together scholars to research the role of political dynasties in Indonesia and in Southeast Asia more broadly? Well, I think that popular kind of opinion on political dynasties is that they have been increasing in number, if not profile, in Indonesia in particular, in recent times. I guess when I started doing my own research, which was looking at the Joyohari Kusumo family, I wanted to see what was out there outside Indonesia so that we could have a better idea comparatively of, you know, how we could better understand the situation in inside Indonesia. Okay. And what did you find were the differences in the ways people were understanding or studying dynasties in Indonesia as opposed to other countries in Southeast Asia? Most interestingly, I mean, if anybody listening will be very aware that the Philippines is, you know, in Southeast Asia, that's where we immediately go to think of um, the Marcos family, for example, springs to mind. And what we, we see there, it's kind of sad story, actually. It's a very depressing message where there's very little hope given to those who are looking at families elsewhere in Southeast Asia. So in the Philippines, their attempts to to end this kind of dynastic rule in politics have, you know, failed again and again. So so from them, we have this cautionary tale. Uh, work that's been done on Lee Kuan Yew and his family in Singapore, it resonates a lot with some of what I would call the established families in Indonesian politics, where we see this incredible branding and marketing of a family and a lot of resources put in put into establish that family and the successive generations over time. So I think that, in fact, we can find instructions for us on how we can, can better um, tackle this, this phenomenon in Indonesia. So far, we've only really, I think, focused in the literature on the kind of patronage politics side of it and, and connections between business and politics, this kind of thing, which these families are very much involved in. But for me and the, you know, my, my fellow researchers in this special edition, we were really in, interested in looking at the family as an institution. And I think that that is something that in the Philippines they've been they've considered as a given for a long time in their, in their study of, of politics. Now, what makes a political family a political dynasty? So there's a bit of a range of opinion on, you know, what qualifies. For example, in our special edition, in the paper by Ed Aspinall and Mohammed Uheb on political dynasties in central Kalimantan, they're really strict and they follow the understanding that a political dynasty is where you have 
successive elected members from the same families. And that is pretty much the established definition in in the literature. But people would vary on how many generations is equivalent to a dynasty. It could be just a second generation being elected is, boom, you have a dynasty. Others kind of think it needs to be more sustained. And in our edition, we have all the families studied in that edition have at least three generations. Okay. And what about the family you look at in particular, the Joyo Harikasumos, how many generations do they date back now? That dynasty, we can count four generations currently um, and counting. So you have Prabhu, who ran for president in 2014 and is head of the political party Gorindra. Prabhu has a brother, Hashim. Now, they're the third generation, what is considered the third generation of that dynasty. And Hashim has two children, Sara and Aryo, who were elected as members of parliament in the 2014 election as well. What's interesting about this political family, this dynasty, I mean, they're, they're very much considered in those terms in Indonesia, is again goes to how we define this phenomenon of, of a dynasty. In this family, in fact, these children or nieces and nephews of Prabhu are the first to be elected to office. So preceding them is Prabhu and his brother. Prabhu has not been elected to office, but has is the head of a political party. And has um, run for office. Has run for time. office, sorry. And, well, was in the military, held, held these positions within the institutions of the state. His brother Hashim is a businessman. Now, going backwards, Prabhu's father, Sumitro, was not, uh, was, was a bureaucrat, basically. was a career politician, uh, member of political party, but not, not an elected, not a member of parliament. So he was a minister in a cabinet as a professional politician. And before him, his father, Magono, so the first generation, was a bureaucrat. So this is where you kind of test these definitions of, of political dynasty but, you know, in my definition, that all seems to fit because they are all very much political agents within the Indonesian state. How many families would there be like the Joyo Hadikasumo family in Indonesia? Are they just a handful of dynasties we can identify or is it much broader than that? The Joyo Hadikusumo family is pretty exemplary. Like, it's a standout because it, it's operating at the national level. But it's not the only one. So you mentioned, I think, in your introduction, perhaps about the the elections of the Jakarta governor that's coming up. And we have the Yoruyono kind of dynasty seeking to be established, is what I would say, with the, you know, with the candidature of Agus Yoruyono there. And then we also, of course, famously have the Sakano family. So these three are kind of the, you know, players at, at the national level. But what has happened in the last 10 years since decentralisation in Indonesia and the proliferation of direct local elections is also a proliferation of local political dynasties. Figures that are a few years old now, but but still relevant, I think, um, put this at around 60 families. What There's really good research now being also done, which is looking at how where the dynasties are spread and they find that there's a bit of clustering in particular places and so you know that hopefully that can tell us why some districts are more likely to have dynasties forming so it's not huge I would say 60 families but you know someone like 
the Joya Harikusumos, we couldn't really have thought about them in the same way in the early 2000s, for example, because they wouldn't have qualified under those definitions. So, you know, it could be bigger than we think. It's interesting you say the Joyo Harikusumo family would only look like a political dynasty perhaps for the last decade or so. Has kind of democracy and the fact that there are a lot more elections going around for mayors, governors, a direct presidential election, has that been a really important factor in enabling political dynasties to emerge in Indonesia? Yeah, most definitely has been. So, I mean, a lot of the studies of political dynasties, you know, they're of these emerging democracies and we see at the same time the tendency for political dynasties to to form there's you know we might think of that as being well, why is that so is it because the the political party structure is weak and it al- allows these people to kind of take a hold on, on a on a particular part of of the country and and to gain seats and nominations within that party that's one part of it why do people vote for them though what what's motivating that is it because of the poor socioeconomic situation and money politics is that a part of it there's lots of different factors that are playing into why political dynasties might be on the up in a, in a democratic situation. In Indonesia in particular, during the new order, of course, with centralised control of politics, this was limited. But at the same time, we know from you know the studies of oligarchic structures that particular families were indeed you know, beneficiaries of that new order system. And many of these families are now the ones who are taking the opportunities as they come up in democratic Indonesia to run for office in an open system. Well, that, I mean, was what I was going to ask you when you talk about 60 families and the fact that you see them now that the political system has opened up with competitive elections. Would all of them have been well-established, influential families playing by different rules before electoral politics became a path to influence? Short answer is yes, that these families have most probably already been established as business families, kind of with a a political role of some kind in the established political parties under the new order, particularly perhaps through Golkar. The The regime party of the new order. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the short answer. And I think that in particular for local politics, having a community an established community presence is really important in the studies that are emerging uh, in whatever form that could be a religious kind of form uh, involved in religious institutions as much as it is about the business and perhaps not politics at all. But on the other hand, we are seeing new, new what I would call emerging families who are nouveau riche perhaps, you know, kind of new money and are taking the chances, the opportunities that are there now uh, with democracy in Indonesia to to try their hand. So there is this kind of, there's two track in a way, established and emerging families. Across these established and emerging families, can you see a fairly common set of motivations to attempt to establish yourself as a political dynasty? And I mean, would those be the terms that these families view themselves in? Sort of, do they see themselves as dynasty builders? Motivation is definitely power. I mean, I don't think that there's any disputing that. I mean, power plus what is very much, for, particularly for the older established families, very much about a sense of obligation 
Yeah. So for for example, the Jojo Hari Kusumo family, who can trace their family line back to, you know, the foundations of Indonesian nationalism and figures who were very much involved in the formative stages of that and in the institutions, in the building of Indonesian Indonesia, they see themselves as carrying on this this sense of obligation to serve. So that's definitely a part of it. But we have to look at examples from around the world. And whilst you can point to that as being, you know, all very fabulous, that's where I come back to power, I think, as being as being a key motivation, as well as that power leading to access to more money, mm. most definitely leading to access to the kinds of um, business opportunities and all of that kind of thing that come with holding office. I think that's a reality in Indonesia. Okay. And I mean, is this a self-conscious project of dynasty building for these families? Yeah. Not just in Indonesia, but but across the region. What we found really came to light when we looked closely inside the families and their dynamics was that they were very strategic, that we can conclude that this is not an accidental scenario with with these families, that they have a plan because they need to, because it's about intergenerational rejuvenation you have to think ahead. And so you have to cultivate um, the next generation. And that's very much what these families do. Okay. And are there, is there a pretty common toolkit of strategies to establish your dynasty or is there quite a, quite a variation? You have to have a certain level of wealth. I mean, that, that's a must, you know, you're competing in, you know, an open democratic system where you've got to get votes, get out the vote and all that stuff. So there's a lot of a lot of money involved in Indonesian politics now. But you also need to activate networks that may lie in the political parties, the established political parties, which is the form that most of the Indonesian families that we're talking about will take. They'll, they will indeed work within established political parties. Golkar is a particular favourite of these parties. <laughs> so alliance building, wealth. Another one is something I may have alluded to earlier, which is the role of local gangs. So the role of your own security network um, remains pretty important in not just Indonesia, but more broadly in Southeast Asia. We see that this is this is something that's common for these families. But mostly it's about also, I think, very much characteristics like adaptability and resilience within these families themselves. Their loyalty is number one to the family itself and second to the political party or, you know, whatever it fixes itself to as a machine um, within the political system. But And one final thing I would add is that what you can't buy, though, is trust and um, track record, which voters will you live and die by those two things and so what we also see is that you may have all the money in the world and all the networks and all of that kind of thing but if your candidate is not a, a trustworthy one and if they don't appear to have the track record then you know they too can fail these dynasties they often fail to get their successor up and you know this is this is the nightmare but it does happen. But you see them, that's where the adaptability and the resilience within the family comes in. How important is it to these dynastic families to succeed electorally? Uh, I guess the Joyo Harikusumo families are an interesting case 
to me here as well as perhaps the family Megawati Sakana Putri, because if we look at the direct presidential elections, both have sort of repeatedly failed to win office. But on the other hand, they control large parties. They've been able to, as you said, in the case of Prabowo, secure election to office for, for another generation of Joyo Harikasumo. Do, does each generation have to win office or or is that simply a, a bonus if, if you can if you can swing it? Well, I think that those two cases are pretty unique in that the families we're talking about basically have their own political parties. You know, they set them up. The ideology around the parties, it's all kind of around, about that family is at the centre of it. Um, Marcus Mitzner has written on the Sakano family very much this way, talking about how... Yes, they have not yet had a successor to, you know, Megawati at least in the in the Sukarno family. But he argues that Jokowi is always and well the family see him as kind of an as outsourcing the family jewels as it were, um, the succession just for a short time until they can cultivate their own successor, their own candidate. That's how he would describe it. So he'd say it's still not off the table. This is still very much a political dynasty slash political party. So, yeah, so they're two pretty unique cases um, where that's the case. For local, more, you know, local families, I think that election to office is key because locally the real power in Indonesia now is is in the the political centres, you know, in in the the role of bupati and regional head and mayor, etc. So I think that for those families, unless there's elected members, it's it can't be equivalent to what we're seeing with Joyo Harikusumos and Sakanos. In that case, I guess if we're talking about sixty families, and you're saying a lot of them actually don't manage to regenerate. Are dynasties actually a large influence on Indonesian politics at the moment? Yeah, well, I mean, this is the thing. We're in this situation where perhaps they're not established. You know, we have to examine how, particularly at the local level, is it too early to kind of call that? I kind of agree. And I think that the studies that we're seeing and the research that's around at the moment is indicating that these are the challenges for dynasties, this regeneration. But just because you have one generation kind of fall off and fail, I don't think that within the family the desire for, <laughs> to seek that in the future goes away necessarily, particularly if you've had a few generations at that level. But I also think that there's a case involving a family in Pakalongan, which is included in our special edition, where the family thought it was heading for extinction because, the, I mean, as a, as a dynasty, because the the youngest or the most recent generation produced pretty mediocre candidates for lots of reasons. Characteristics were not really um, looking like leadership worthy. However, somehow they pulled a rabbit out of the bag and, and this particular young man succeeded. And so it can happen that, that dynasties do rejuvenate despite what they think may occur. But... I think that, yeah, I think that we're still not yet at a position where we're saying that Indonesia has been run by dynasties. This is where it's also useful to look at the Philippines, yeah, as a comparative case. And there you can see that there's a huge difference. And Indonesia is definitely not that. However, given the national political constellation, there's a, you know, we need to examine it more because it's a little bit concerning that the three major political parties 
currently in Indonesian politics involve these families. To me, the interesting thing is open the paper on any given day in Indonesia and you're likely to find a negative article about dynasties, typically talking about corruption. We also saw efforts in the last local election law to legislate dynasties out of existence by restricting family members from, from running for office. Should we, despite the money and networks that they have, should we be surprised that these dynasties are succeeding at all? Or, or is there some other appeal that they, that they do have to voters? I think that leadership counts for a lot in, in Indonesian politics. We talk about personality politics and that kind of thing. And I think that the political family ties into that very well. I do think that it is puzzling that members of political families continue to be elected. But I would go back to my point about track record and delivering on what they promise. This is often the consequence of a quite uneven playing field, perhaps, where the very networks and that we talked about earlier, the connections with business, et cetera, et cetera, give these families an unfair advantage or an advantage over other candidates, which mean that they can deliver to the constituents, be it in the form of payment for votes or in the form of, once they're elected, projects that benefit the community. But yeah, I just, I'm unlike you, very, in a way, confused about why when it's overtly, perhaps sometimes not overtly, but there are corrupt members of these families, they continue to be elected. But I would say that not all of them are and that that's the fine line. For some someone like Prabowo, I think that the fact that Gurindra as a political party was established by him and his brother together on the basis of their family legacy is very important to its success and his, well, almost success, because I think for that very fact that his own character, that himself stand alone, there were so many flaws, so many complexities to consider. But when it was packaged together with his father and his grandfather and this service to the nation, those things in his own particular past could kind of be blurred a little bit. And I think, yeah, that's been a very important reason for Gurindra's success. Sort of talking about electoral appeal, obviously the Jakarta gubernatorial election, I think, is very much in the forefront of the mind of people following Indonesian politics. I saw a graph on social media today suggesting it's garnering the same amount of media coverage in Indonesia as around 100 other elections that are going to be held in other parts of the country on the same day. One lens to look at that election is as a competition between three of these big dynasties, or as you said, maybe in the case of Yudhiyono, a, a dynasty wanting to come into being. How important do you think the dynastic element is in the Jakarta gubernatorial elections? Well, I think it's more important than people perhaps are making out. I mean, particularly with the case of the Yudhiyono family and Agus in his character. I think that for that family in particular, this was something long-term in the planning. So we're talking about the strategic nature of it. Agus, you know, they've all, these people, just like the Lee family in Singapore, you know, they've been educated overseas. They've been given their, their time in the military. This is all very much about cultivating the perfect kind of political leader in in their countries. And so, yeah, I think it's very relevant for Agus's candidature. In terms of the other two, we've got proxies 
kind of in there. So it's it's less easy. And we can talk about Marcus Mietzner's point earlier where he said that they're kind of just being outsourced. The positions of, you know, successor are just being outsourced for a while to, in this case, to Ahok for the PDIP or to uh, Anis um, Baswedan for Gurindra. But I don't, I don't really agree. That doesn't fit. But what it does show us is that the power brokers in Indonesian politics currently are connected to just these three small, large, <laughs> powerful families. I think that that is not something that was anticipated with the beginning of Reformasi. That was not anticipated, you know, 18 years ago that, that this would be the case. Many people, though, would say, well, this is just, why? Why would we not anticipate this? Because the oligarchs, you know, have just continued as they liked throughout this period, post-New Order, and have adapted to the new conditions in Indonesia. And these families are just one form of that. Shifting to a slightly different topic, it's striking to hear you talk about dynasties, sort of at the risk of misrepresenting you. I think you talk as someone committed to democratic reform and so speak in terms of the dangers that dynasties pose to democracy in Indonesia, that you could have an expansion of their role that would make the political system more like the Philippines. Mm. And so, I mean, you've talked in terms of what might be done to prevent that. Can you extend that and say that democratic reformers are the key opponents of political dynasties in Indonesia? Or in fact, do they also have enemies within the entrenched political elites who who see these dynasties as a, as a threat to their own sources of power. That's where this is very interesting. In 2014, September 2014, you'll remember, there was a bill passed in the Indonesian parliament, which was an anti-dynasty bill, essentially, yeah, to get rid of local direct local elections. The bill was passed because it was backed by a coalition of parties, which was led by Gorindra Prabol's party. And, and the arguments made were particularly around nepotism and corruption um, about how there was too many. In, in fact, yeah, these, these political families were becoming too dominant and things like that. So, I mean, it just seems pretty ironic, does it not, that a party that is a, itself a political family or based on a political family was behind that push. But it's not that unusual because it's about jockeying, jockeying for space. And so dynasties are often the biggest opponents of dynastic politics. As I said, at times you've spoken during our conversation of the need to limit the expansion of dynasties. If that was your goal in Indonesia, what realistically would you do to curb their influence and and regeneration? Okay, there are some cases where good people within political families are elected to office and, you know, the Kennedys, okay, they were good people. And I'm not saying, you know, I actually admire quite a lot the Joyo Harikusumo fourth generation, <laughs> I have to say, even though I was sounding so opposed to this, this form, but in particular, the woman, Sarah, you know, I think she's a great champion for the rights of women, in particular, more more specifically, she's an advocate against human trafficking. She does good things. So I'm not saying that you don't necessarily get good candidates from these political families. But I think that, yes, as I mentioned, Philippines is a cautionary tale. So it's something, you know, that's not where Indonesia wants to go, where, you know, to end up in a situation like that. But at the same time, in the Philippines, they have tried anti-nepotism kinds of laws and, and they haven't there have been ways 
that these families get around those. It's not it's not as clear cut. We seen in America just today the announcement that uh, Donald Trump's son-in-law is appointed to a very senior position in the White House, for example. In America, have anti-nepotism laws, but you know they read the fine print and they've managed to get around that. So, I mean, I don't think that there's a perfect situation we can example that we can point to from anywhere. I think that so long as it's about education, isn't it, of the public, and they themselves have the power in a democracy to choose. And so, it's not to say that uh, that Sarah Joyo Harikusumo may not defeat fairly squarely a candidate who is running against her, you know, from another political party, um, based on her own track record, yeah, and the level of trust that people have in her and confidence that they have in her. Of course, that's going to have something to do with her family history. But perhaps that, you know, that's all taken into consideration and that's fair. What we wouldn't want to see is a situation in Indonesian politics where in order to gain entry to, you know, the political party structure or to become a candidate um, to be elected for office, that you need to have that connection. That's what we we absolutely wouldn't, you know, think of being as um, a free and open democracy. Now, Gemma, there's a lot more I could ask you, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for taking the time to share your insights with us today. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. Gemma Purdy from Monash University. And remember, she'll be joining us as one of the new co-hosts of the Talking Indonesia podcast this year, along with Charlotte Satyadi and Dirk Thompson. Look out for the next episode of Talking Indonesia on the 2nd of February, hosted by Gemma. And remember, in the meantime, you can find the entire archive of the Talking Indonesia podcast at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, via iTunes or your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.